Well, do keep your Bibles open at that passage in Acts chapter 7. Yesterday I came back from London after spending uh, a few days, 10 days or so, with uh, the family there. And for some of the time we were staying with our younger son, Andrew, and his wife, who have moved house to a section of Richmond where we used to live called Hampton. And several times over the last few days we were driving past or in a bus riding past Hampton Court Palace. Hampton Court Palace is famous for its relationship with Henry VIII. Henry VIII was a king of England, most famously known for the number of wives he managed to go through in his time. Six, apparently. And uh, it wasn't a very good thing to be one of Henry's wives. They, They lost their heads. Sometimes wives lose their heads at you, but they lost their heads as a result of being connected to Henry. Anyway, uh, uh, that is absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the sermon, except that it made me remember an incident that occurred in Hampton Court Palace where there is a little chapel. I've been in the chapel. Uh, One of these days, one day we were taking an American visitor, actually, who'd come to see us uh, to the, uh, the palace to show her around. Nobody seemed to be taking any money at the door, which was great. And so we just walked in. Nobody stopped us. Nobody asked for money. Nobody told us where we should or shouldn't go. And we found ourselves in parts of the palace. I'm not quite sure we were meant to be in. But anyway, we were there, and we got into this little chapel. And in this chapel, this is the story now that I'm getting to, to start with. In this chapel, the English reformer, Hugh Latimer, who was a bishop, the Bishop of Rochester, from 1515 to 1539, so a little while ago, um, was summoned to come and preach before King Henry VIII. Now, Hugh uh, Latimer was a very staunch Protestant on his way to becoming a real biblical Christian, otherwise known as a Presbyterian, but he never quite made it. But he was a really strong Protestant, and uh, his preaching was obviously not exactly in favor from King Henry. So he preached a sermon that the king didn't like. King told him he'd come back the next day and preach a better sermon that was more to his liking. Hugh Latimer came back the next day. He came back obviously in fear and trembling because in those days you didn't want to, you didn't really want to get to rub the king up the wrong way. I mean, even being his wife wasn't very safe. Being a bishop was even less safe. So he came back the next day and he preached exactly the same sermon, word for word. Strangely enough, and Henry VIII was of all an unpredictable character, and he was an enigma as far as spiritual things were concerned, eventually he called Hugh Latimer in, thanked him for his honesty and integrity in preaching the message that God had given to him, and commended his courage. Well, we're reading the story of Stephen here, and Stephen is not going to have such a good outcome to his sermon. We know that because some of us have read the end of the story. This is the story of Stephen's martyrdom. And in this chapter, chapter 7, I have to say we have one of the longest chapters in the book of Acts, one of the longest sermons that is given or, or talks that's given in the book of Acts, and in almost every commentary or series of sermons that I've uh, encountered, usually this chapter is omitted. 
because everybody wants to get to the action. And the action is when Stephen gets stoned to death. So you go from the trial of Stephen and you kind of telescope it together with the killing of Stephen, the execution of Stephen, the martyrdom of Stephen at the end. Well, I, I want to kind of pull open the telescope and say that we don't really understand the life of Stephen or his ministry until we understand what he says in this chapter. Already our attention has been drawn to this man. He's one of the seven servers that has been appointed to help the apostles to be, to be a relief to the apostles so they can focus on their ministry. And among the seven servers, this man Stephen has been highlighted. Chapter 6, verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Or again in verse 8, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, who did wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Several things are highlighted. First, he is separated from the others. We're told that he's full of faith and power. We're told that he does miraculous things, which only the apostles have been doing up to this point. And I think what's being underlined in the story is, here's, here's a man you have to reckon with. Here's a man to take notice of. And what we know about Stephen is, that everything in his life seemed to start with a theological di dispute. He was a Greek-speaking Jew. He went to a Greek-speaking synagogue in Jerusalem. He had been converted to Christianity and started to engage in conversation with others in the synagogue about Christian things. He was so mighty in the Scriptures in refuting the arguments of others who were opposed to Christianity that those who could not argue against him decided that rather than try to argue against him, they would blacken his character. And so, so there was a campaign, a smear campaign of lies, an innuendo that was leveled against him. Chapter 6, verse 11, when, they, when we, we heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God, they say. And not only was it, was it a slanderous approach, they descended into illegality. They, they produced false witnesses. Verse 13, we're told that these false witnesses came with an elaborated charge to the Sanhedrin saying that this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, that is the temple, and against this law. So there's the background to the speech. And there are several things about the speech that highlight its significance as well. The length of the speech it's the longest talk recorded in Acts. The style of the speech, it isn't like the other sermons. This is not so much a sermon as a kind of miniaturized biblical theological dissertation given to these authorities. It, it covers the whole sweep of the Old Testament history and theology. Stephen shows that the events surrounding the life of Jesus are part of a movement, part of a cohesive movement of God throughout history. And the talk is significant perhaps more than anything else because of its outcome. It is directly responsible for Stephen's death. That's one part of the outcome. But more than that, it contributes to an upsurge of persecution of the church. Now you see, that, that doesn't sound to me like a very successful talk. Like if what you say tonight preaching here at 10th 
causes us to start a riot, that's maybe not a good indicator of the success of your sermon. Well, maybe it is, because it would be a sign of life. But Stephen's sermon leads to massive persecution of the church, which we begin to read in chapter 8, leads to the church being driven out of Jerusalem into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then beyond the boundaries of the ancient borders of Israel into the Gentile nations around, which, funnily enough, is exactly the program that Jesus had laid down in chapter 1. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And to a church that was kind of stuck in Jerusalem, it was the death of Stephen that initiated the persecution that led to the church mushrooming and fulfilling its mission in the world. So it's a, a very significant conversion. And the other thing, one last thing that's significant about the, the sermon that Stephen preaches here is that it resulted also, we think, in the conversion of a certain man called Saul of Tarsus. Just coincidentally, we're told, that he was standing there looking on when Stephen was killed. Well, What's happening in this chapter? Stephen is on trial. He's on trial for his life. Secondly, Stephen is acting as a, a witness. He's staying, taking a stand before men and God as a witness, as a martyr. This is at the time where the word martyr doesn't yet have the significance that we pour into it. Uh, that is, dying for your faith. He is speaking for his faith. He is standing up giving evidence, giving a witness. And the strange, thing about, the strange thing about Stephen as he comes to give witness is, you would imagine that he would speak in his own defense. In fact, what Stephen does is he clarifies what the issues are that he has been uh, arrested for, and he turns the table and he moves from defense to offense. He actually becomes a kind of prosecuting attorney. So if you like, it's something like this. Here's a man, he's brought into the court, he's put before the court, he's asked to respond to the charges, and he replies to the judge something like this. I, I, I didn't, he's, he would say, I didn't commit the bulk bugler, uh, burglary at number 4237 Pine Street, but I did park my car illegally on Spruce Street, but I really want to talk to you about where you were on the night of the murder. So he's clarifying what the issues are really that he's up in court for, but he turns the table and he's putting before the people who are his judges the fact that they are in the court, they're in the court of God, and they're answerable to God for their behavior. Now how does he do this? He does this by drawing their attention to God. He starts, do you notice the language with which he starts? The God of glory. It's only used once in the Old Testament, but it's a, a phrase that captures something of the majesty and splendor of God. The God of glory. Good choice. Good place to start. 
He's putting everything in perspective, and he's telling us some things about the God of glory. First of all, the God of glory is a God of history. He's talking about our fathers. He's talking about Abraham, and then about Joseph and others. He's, he's bringing the history of Israel before the court. You say, well, this isn't a good thing. This is not a good time for you to be doing this, Stephen. Bringing history up at a time when your life is at stake is perhaps not the best bet. But he starts with history. He starts with narrative. He starts with the history of Israel because the message of Christianity has historical roots. You see, you need to understand something about Christianity. Some of, you, some of you are new to this, and you don't understand what Christianity is about. Maybe you think Christianity is a series of arguments for its own veracity, its own truthfulness and trustworthiness. Maybe you think Christianity is a philosophy that you have to learn, and that you have to learn philo philosophical principles. Or, or maybe you think Christianity is a moral code that you must learn and live by. Maybe that's your understanding of what Christi Christianity is. And what Stephen is doing to these people is, is this. He is rooting the Christian message, the message for which he is on trial. He's rooting it where it ought to be rooted in the history of the world and in the history of God's dealings with the world. He is saying to these people, what is happening now in Christ and in this Christian movement is part of the bigger movement in history of God's dealings with people. Christianity is claiming to be true history that happened. It's not a philosophy. It's not a set of arguments or ideas or a moral code. It is about something that happened. It is about news. It is about action. It is about the history of the world in particular. True history that happened. It's not about you or your problems or your speculations or even your needs tonight. It's about something outside of you and outside of me in concrete history. The God of glory. Now that's a very important place for us to start. History matters. It matters because a church that bypasses or ignores the history of Israel, for example, or the Old Testament, isn't even Christian. It isn't Christian. The Old Testament is the only Bible Jesus knew. The Old Testament was the only Bible Stephen had at his disposal at this point. And all of Jesus' teaching and all of the apostles' teaching about Jesus and about the, new, about the gospel are rooted in, drawn from, based in the Old Testament scriptures. And it starts with God. In the beginning, God. Stephen is right to begin with God. He begins with history and he begins with God and he puts God in a place that is transcendent. The God of glory. The God who is invisible and incomprehensible. The God who is infinite and eternal. The God who is splendid and majestic. The God who is transcendent and also imminent. Far away and close at hand. The God of glory is the God of history. Secondly, the God of glory is the God of revelation. Peter believed, you see, that the history of Israel 
was part of the revelation of God to the world. It was part of God's interaction with the world. And he believed that that revelation of God in the Old Testament was progressive. It was moving somewhere. It was preparing the way for what was now happening in Christ and in the apostles. In other words, the approach that that Stephen took to the Old Testament was very much in keeping with that summary which the writer to the Hebrews gives us in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Well, Stephen understood that. And so he begins by addressing his brothers and fathers, assuming a common faith and a spiritual heritage. And he begins with Abraham. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. In other words, the God of glory is not only splendid in himself, but he is the God who reveals himself. Human beings do not simply stumble into God, nor is God their eureka moment when after they've been studying the meaning of life and and everything, they discover him or they discover the idea that there might be a God. God is not the end of our speculation or even our search for meaning and purpose in life. No, God reveals himself. He makes himself known. He introduces himself to humanity. We could expand on this and point to the things that he has made that give evidence of his workmanship. We could think of the stars and the heavens and the the things we see around us and the beautiful things in the world that remind us that there is order and purpose and significance in the very smallest things. The heavens declare the glory of God. But supremely, it is in the actions of history. It is in the story of Israel. It is in the dealings of God with this man, man, Abraham, that he identifies. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham. And he's speaking to these Jewish leaders and he's saying, you remember, you remember where where Abraham was when the God of glory appeared to him. You're accusing me, you see, of, of abusing this holy place, this temple, as if this is the only place in which God dwells or where God lives and where God meets with people. But you remember where God revealed himself when he was dealing with Abraham. He dealt with him and met with him in Mesopotamia way out east of here, in Gentile pagan lands, far from here, hundreds of miles from this holy place and this temple. The God of glory appeared. He made himself known to our founding father in a pagan land. And do you remember what Abraham was doing in that land? When God of glory appeared to Abraham, Abraham wasn't looking for the God of glory. Abraham was a sun worshiper along with everyone else in Ur of the Chaldees. And he was a sophisticated pagan. Ur of the Chaldees is one of the most advanced civilizations of the ancient world. They even had indoor, underfloor heating in their homes. Something, central heating, something that the English are only discovering today. And which my children don't seem to have discovered at all since we've been freezing for the last few days. And I hope they don't watch this. (laughs) Abraham was a sophisticated pagan. He was an idolater. We have idols today, of course. Our idols are money, sex, celebrity, science, and even power. 
But they're idols nonetheless, and people are devoted to their idols. But one philosophy that we share with those ancient people is this, and that is that life itself is a matter of accident and chance, that existence itself, that love and health and beauty and happiness and suffering and disease and calamity are all the products of chance, blind chance. To the humanist, there is no purpose discernible anywhere. But you listen to Stephen. The God of glory appeared. He made himself known to this one man. Why did he do this? He did this in order to initiate a relationship with this man, to establish an intimacy with this one man, that he might speak to this man, that he might communicate to this man. Because he has a plan for this man, and his plan for this man encompasses men and women in this room today because his purpose was to bless the nations of the world through this man. Through this man would come the Savior of the world, and through this one man would come a promise of blessing which men and women and boys and girls today embrace when they embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. God comes looking for Abraham when Abraham isn't looking for him. And God comes and speaks to Abraham. The God of glory is the God of revelation. The God of glory, thirdly, is the God of everywhere. You might say that he's a God who travels a lot. You find him appearing to Abraham in Mesopotamia, to Joseph in Egypt, to Moses in the Sinai Desert. Wherever he goes is a holy place because he says to Moses in the middle of the desert, take off your shoes from off your feet because you're standing in holy ground. He's in the Sinai Peninsula. He's not on Mount, Sinai, Mount uh, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. He's in the Sinai Peninsula, far from the Promised Land. And God says, this is holy ground. Wherever I am is holy ground. He's the God of everywhere. Because you cannot tie down the God of glory. Abraham learned that. He learned that. That the God of glory does not tie himself to a bit of real estate in the Middle East called the Promised Land. Now, usually, you see, within Judaism, the people to whom Stephen is speaking, they understood that God was associated with the temple and Jerusalem. The very idea of connecting the word God and glory made them think immediately of the temple. It was in the temple that the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, descended and dwelt during the time of the wilderness wanderings, and then when the temple was inaugurated by Solomon, it was the glory, the Shekinah that came and rested in the temple. And people saw this cloud of fire by night and a cloud by day that was a symbol of the glory of God that was filling the holy place. And yet here is Stephen saying, you remember, the God of glory appeared to Abraham far away from this place. This God of the Bible is not confined to a temple or a land. The God who arrived in splendor at the tabernacle and the temple is the God who first appeared to Abraham far away. And he calls Abraham, what does he call Abraham to be? He calls him to be a pilgrim. 
That's why we're told that he went out from the land of the Chaldeans to Haran and then on to the land which you now live in, Peter, Stephen says to them. And then in verses 2 to 6, he says this, God removed him from there into this land where you're now living. And he gave him no inheritance in it. He promised something in the future, inheritance in the future. But while he was, while he was living, Abraham was a sojourner and a pilgrim and a wanderer. The life of Abraham was a lifetime of change and unsettlement and movement. But God revealed himself to him in all sorts of places. I suppose there's something in all of us, isn't there? There certainly is something in me that would like to belong somewhere, some, somewhere where I'd been all my life, somewhere where I'd grown. I have friends back home in Hamilton where I grew up, and they've been there. They've been there for the last X number of years since I left at the age of 17. They've never been in it. You know, they've gone on exotic holidays, vacations, but they've lived there all their life. Sometimes I feel envious of people who stay in the same place since we've moved so much. And Abraham, he was called to be a wanderer upon the face of the earth, and I identify with him. But what, what Stephen is teaching here is, you see, that God is a God beyond boundaries. Later on in, uh, in verse 49, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build me, says the Lord, or where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? In other words, the whole universe is a temple for the presence of the God of the Bible. I just pause there for a moment. But you see, often we want to tie God down, don't we? We want to think of God in a way that's, that we can get our minds wrapped around. We, we, we want to find him when we want him, where we want to find him. So, we expect to find God in church. We expect to find God when we're reading our Bible. We expect to find God in a quiet, holy moment or in a, perhaps with the beauty of nature or, or something more significant when we're watching some amazing view or, or we're looking at a painting or we're listening to a symphony. We want to find God in, in places like that, but we don't expect to find God when we have a common cold or between the sheets of our bed or in the ugly aspects of life or in the humdrum routine of our everyday experience, we don't really expect to find God there. We don't look for Him there, actually. We never look for Him there. We think God belongs to the high spiritual moment, the emotional moment. We don't think of God in the lecture room. We don't think of God in the operating theater. We don't think of God in the slum or the ghetto. We don't think of God in those places. In our own way, you see, we try to box God in. I remember the story of a small boy who was talking to his mother and as he was drinking his glass of milk and he was asking these kind of philosophical, theological questions that children often ask their parents. Mommy, he said, or mom, translating it, is God everywhere? Yes, dear, of course he is. So, Mom, is God in this room? Well, I expect he is, son. Mom, is God in this glass of milk? Well, Mother was a bit more hesitant now, aware of the potential metaphysical pitfalls of answering the question. 
Well, well, I suppose so, she said. Whereupon the little boy put his hand right over the glass of milk and said, Got him! <laughs> well, I don't think we do it that, that, to that degree, but I do think we try to tie God down. We want him in the bits of our lives where we can disengage with him. The bits of our lives where we can engage with him when we want to, and then in other areas of our lives, we, we put him, we marginalize him. Abraham learned that you cannot put boundaries on God. The God of glory will reach us in any place, in every place. Are you prepared to bump into him? Tomorrow morning when you turn the corner, are you prepared to bump into him as you walk into work? Are you prepared to have him there or looking over your shoulder? That there's no place where he isn't. He's the God of glory, and the God of glory is everywhere. And the God of glory is also a God of promise. The call of Abraham to become a pilgrim people was matched by a promise. So he is the call to become a pilgrim and a wanderer and a stranger and never really enjoy the land. But along with that, there was a promise, a promise of an inheritance. In fact, that's the whole movement of the story. It originates with God, verse 2, who appeared, verse 3, who spoke, verse 4, who said, verse 5, who promised, verse 6, who spoke, and verse 8, who gave the sign of the covenant circumcision. All the movement in the story is from God's side. That's the way it was with the fathers. That's the way it is with us. He's the one who calls us to a pilgrim lifestyle with a promise of an internal inheritance. God gives him this promise. God gives Abraham a promise. He was childless, for goodness sake. He was too old to have children. His wife was well past childbearing age, and she'd been barren all her life. Anyway, all, all this, the odds are stacked against them. God gives him the promise when all the odds are stacked against him, and Abraham believes God. He believes the promise of God when all the odds are stacked against him. This was God's covenant promise to Abraham, sealed by the sacrifice of animals and God's flaming glory passing between the parts of the offering as a sign that God had inaugurated this covenant promise. But you see what Stephen stresses? This promise, amazing promise, was given to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. It was his faith in the promise that got him out of Mesopotamia and heading outwards towards the promised land. And so what Stephen does is, is draw a straight line between Abraham's call as a pagan in a pagan land to their possession now as inheritors of the promise in the land that symbolized the promise that God had given to them. And that promise and the purpose behind it spanned generations. Do you see how he emphasizes that? It's going to take 400 years for this next bit of the promise to mature. Abraham believes it even before he has a son. He believes it over 400 years before his successors are going to actually live in the land. He believes it and lives even though he has no inheritance in the land, even at the point of his death. It's the promise, he believes, the promise that matters. And trusting in that promise, 
he looks forward to what God has to give him. Sometimes the promises of God and the purposes of God mature slowly. They do in history. That's why we need to read history. We need to see that we are part of the continuum of what God is doing in the world and that some of the things that God's doing in your life and mine don't happen instantaneously. I want to be holy, but my holiness doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come instantaneously. I want to be the man God wants me to be. But he seems to be taking a heck of a lot of time getting around to making me the man that God wants me to be. That's the way life is. Some of you struggle. You struggle with, with issues in your life, and you think, when is this going to actually work out? I, I, this is what I want to be. This is what I am. Look at this big disjunction between what I want to be and what I know I should be and where I am. That's the way it was with Abraham. 400 years. A promise being given to it being fulfilled. And even then, it's only partially fulfilled. The bigger promise is being fulfilled today. And do you know how long it's going to take? It may go, do you know, there may be another several thousand years of Christian history to go before Jesus returns. We don't know. We learn from the story of Abraham and the story that Stephen tells that God's purposes work slowly, but they work definitely and purposefully. Well, the God of glory is a God of promise. And as we come to the Lord's table tonight, we come on the basis of that promise, a promise that has been fulfilled in Christ. And here David, or Stephen rather, I get confused between morning and evening, uh, here Stephen highlights what's going to help us segue into this communion service this evening. He tells the story of Joseph. It kind of comes out of the blue. You think, where's he going with this story of Joseph here? The God of glory is a God of patience and a God of grace. The story of Joseph is one of the best known in the Bible because somebody wrote a musical about Joseph and his famous tiny-colored coat. I think it's very famous because somebody else wrote a book about Joseph, which you can buy downstairs. <laughs> Joseph, however, was blessed with prophetic gifts. And the secret about Joseph, as you read the story, is that Joseph represents the Word of God in his home. That's what's going on. Sometimes if you read the story, you think, here's this precocious boy who has these dreams, who tells his family what these dreams are, and he's insensitive to the response of his family. That's not the case. Joseph represents the Word of God in his home. He's a prophet. What he tells his family is going to come true exactly the way Joseph tells it. He is a prophet speaking the word of God. But he th says things to his family that his family dislike. One of the things is, there's coming a day when all of you are going to bow down to me. <laughs> you think, he's an arrogant pup. You know. Do something about him. Just slap him around, put him outside for a while in sub-zero temperatures till he cools down. His arrogance. But the Bible never says that about Joseph. Joseph spoke the word of God. That's what God told him. I don't know how he said it. I don't know if he said it with a kind of sly smile or whether he said it with a straight face. We're not told any of that stuff. But he spoke the true word of God to these people. And they hated him for it. His brothers hated him for it. That's the point that Stephen is making. 
He's saying God spoke to, through Joseph to his family, and his family rejected him and sent him to Egypt. And he spoke the word of God in Egypt. And guess what the Bible says? There he is in Egypt, which represents everything you can think of that is anti-Jew and anti-Israel and anti-Jerusalem and anti the purposes of God, and yet God was with his spokesman, Joseph, in Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, and God was with him there, God used him to do what? God used Joseph, not only to save Egypt from starvation, but God used Joseph, the rejected one, the one who, like Jesus, was sold, sold out by his brothers. Jesus is sold out by his brother, Judas, because of their envy against him. The Sanhedrin crucified Jesus, just as Joseph's brothers, out of envy, sold Joseph to these wandering people who were on their way down the road to Egypt. And Joseph, who was sold, who was despised and rejected by the people, Joseph was responsible, ultimately, for being exalted in Egypt to the highest place next to Pharaoh. He was responsible for initiating the procedure that led to the survival of the Egyptians as he made sure they had food enough to feed them. But even more importantly, the whole of the patriarchs, the whole of the family, all of Israel as it was then, 72 people, all of them were saved. Israel was saved. The race was saved. The Jews were saved. The nation was saved by the action of the despised, rejected Joseph. You know where Stephen's taking them. The one they had rejected. The one they had despised. The Christ that they had, out of envy, destroyed. God was with him. God has exalted him to the highest place. And God has made him, God has made him the only Savior there is for the whole world, not just for Jews, but for the whole world. What Stephen is doing is making a case here for the gospel for the Gentiles, as well as for Jews. And good news for you tonight. Good news for you that the one who was rejected has become the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us such love for the Savior, such joy in his achievement, and such encouragement from knowing that you, who are the God of glory, the God of everywhere, the God of revelation, the God of promise, the God of grace. We ask in your strong name. Amen.